0: Romans 15, verse 4 says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime, and that's a reference to the Old Testament Scriptures, were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. There's a Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and it is the verse 11. Now all these things happened unto them for end samples, or we could say types or examples, and it's referring to the history of the children of Israel in the Old Testament. And it says, And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world or the ends of the age are come. So the Scriptures of the Old Testament... If you take what Paul wrote in both of these scriptures together are for the purpose of our learning that we might through patience and comfort of the scriptures have hope they're also written for our admonition that we might be instructed that we might be taught even warned by the content of scripture It's my purpose over the next while to study with you the five books of Moses. I want us to look at the Pentateuch. Now I've done quite a bit of study in respect of this, in teaching our seminary students. And a lot of that material I will unashamedly use for preaching in these messages. I'm going to call this series... Perusing the Pentateuch. Uh, There are a number of books uh, that were written by one Warren Wearsby with very clever titles. I don't know if he gave a title to the Pentateuch of that type or not. But that's what I'm going to call this series. Perusing the Pentateuch. Because that's what we're going to do. We're going to take a look at the five books that begin your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now when I say that, you might think, boy, this is going to take a long time. Well, hopefully it won't take too long because I intend for the series not to be exhaustive nor exhausting. So we'll look to the Lord to help us in this respect. But today I want to just give an introduction to the Pentateuch. The Bible begins, as you can see, with five books. They are ordinarily referred to as the Pentateuch. Now that name Pentateuch is derived from two Greek words. Penta meaning five and tuchos meaning book. So five books. In English you will be familiar with words like pentagram and pentagon you know what the pentagon is because of the shape of the building a five pointed star a five sided shape Pentateuch is the name that's given to the first five books of the old testament and this has come to us from what is known as the septuagint the septuagint was a version of the old testament that was translated into Greek. It was said to have been accomplished by 70 Alexandrian Jews about the 3rd century BC. And it's called the Septuagint, some people say Septuagint, version from Septuaginta, which is a Latin term for 70. But then, of course, you Latin scholars knew that. There is good reason, however... To believe that before that version was translated, the writings of Moses were recognized as fivefold. The Jews, for example, called these writings the law or the five-fifths. Five-fifths of the law or simply sometimes they referred to it as the fifths. There's a spiritual completeness about the Pentateuch in itself. Yes, there are five parts. And those five parts do provide us somewhat with a consecutive history concerning over the first 2,500 years or so of human existence. But they also constitute a progressive spiritual unity. And we want to look at the spiritual message of the Bible. We don't want to be just historians, but we want to allow the history to speak to our own day. And so you have here a progressive spiritual unity. The Pentateuch, the five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, they set forth in their main features what has been described as the order of the experience of the people of God in all ages. Now we're going to find as we study the five books of Moses that things that are said about Israel as a nation are things that are true of every believer, even today. For example, when we talk about redemption by blood, and we study the Passover in Exodus chapter 12, as we may well do, when you think about that, people who are in bondage, delivered from that bondage by the shedding of the blood of a lamb, and brought out of that bondage, And we call that redemption. Isn't that a wonderful picture of what has happened to every Christian? Isn't that exactly what God has done in your case and mine? We're in bondage to sin. We are without God, without hope in the world. And by the shedding of the blood of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that blood being applied to the lintel and the doorposts of our hearts, we're delivered. We are redeemed. We're a redeemed people. And we're brought out into newness of life. There you have a picture in Israel's experience of the experience of God's people in all ages. Now when you look at the books in turn, there are various ways in which you can sum them up. For example, in Genesis, which is a book of beginnings, and that's obvious because you're going to find in the first book of the Bible, the first mention of so many things. But in Genesis, you have ruin through the sin of man. This is how the book virtually begins. It begins with God's creation. God creates man. And then man, fairly quickly, sins against God. And all mankind from there is plunged into sin and misery. So Genesis really is a book of ruin through the sin of man. I think it's interesting that when you look at the very last verse of Genesis, it mentions a coffin in Egypt. You know what a coffin is? A casket. It's a box into which you place a corpse, a dead person. Why are there dead persons? The wages of sin is death. There would be no death if it were not for sin. And we will look at that as we go through this series. Ruin through the sin of man. You come to the book of Exodus, the second book, and we've already hinted at this. It's a message of redemption. Redemption through the blood of the Lamb and by the power of the Spirit. In the book of Leviticus, there is a story of fellowship. Fellowship or communion on the ground of atonement by sacrifice. You will remember not so very long ago, we studied some of the sacrifices at the beginning of Leviticus. Hopefully you can remember that far back just a few weeks ago. Fellowship on the ground of atonement by sacrifice. Then you come to the book of Numbers. The fourth book of Moses. There you have direction or guidance if you like. By the providence of God during earthly pilgrimage. You have people who are on the move. And the book of Numbers has within it two great census taking occasions. A time when the people were numbered two occasions and that's really where you get the term numbers from. And then in Deuteronomy, the fifth book of Moses, there is renewed and completed instruction. There is a repetition virtually of the law of God. You find for example in Exodus chapter 20 that it gives you the Ten Commandments but that's repeated and and somewhat with a couple of little uh, you could call them minor adjustments in Deuteronomy chapter 5 you have the law repeated. There is a reiteration of God's law in Deuteronomy. The word Deuteronomy really refers to the book of the second law. So there you have a renewed and completed instruction of God's people but also the bringing of that pilgrim people to their predetermined destination. And again there is typically set forth there what God does for his people in all ages. We sing that hymn, don't we? I am bound for the promised land. I am bound for the promised land. Oh, who will come and go with me? I am bound for the promised land. The land of Canaan. In a sense, it may be referred to as heaven. There is that application, the heavenly Canaan. But it also can refer to that which is the experience of God's people in their sanctification, because when the people of God got into Canaan, they still had battles to fight. When we get to heaven, there will be no more battles to fight. We will not face any enemies in, in, in the promised land. But they did when they first entered, and you can read all about that in the book of Joshua. But again, here's the order of the experience of God's people in all ages. Remember what it says there in Romans 15.4. The things that were written aforetime were written for our learning. So the Lord wants us to learn, even from the Pentateuch, lessons for our own lives. And so you think about the nation, the nation of Israel, a special people... What is predicated of them is true of the individual believer as well. Now furthermore, these first five books of the Old Testament provide us with a progressive five-fold revelation of God in His relationship with His people. You can see God in relationship with His people throughout the five books of Moses. For example, in Genesis, you witness the sovereignty of God In creation and in election. What a wonderful theme that is for our consideration. God's sovereignty. His sovereignty over creation. He created all things by the word of His power from nothing. We talk about ex nihilo creation. It means creation out of nothing. He spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. And I never cease to be amazed when I read the first chapter of Genesis, which is literal history. That when God is speaking of the myriad of stars, he just says, The stars also. It's almost as though it's an afterthought. The stars also. And yet if you talk to any astronomer, or, or you are involved in it even as an amateur astronomer looking through some telescope, It's absolutely incredible, the number of the stars, infinite. But the sovereignty of God is seen also in election in the book of Genesis. We think about the choosing of certain people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and their descendants. And God promising a particular land, the land of Canaan, to those people by covenant as their inheritance. And what was the reason for it? Was there some reason in them that God found? Did God look down and think, well there's a really good man there, I could use him? No. Abraham was an idolater. Abraham worshipped false gods, just like the rest of the people in Mesopotamia on the other side of the flood, the other side of the Euphrates. But God chose him. And you see that sovereign choice of God all the way through the history of the patriarchs. Why did God choose Isaac and not Ishmael? Why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? Why was it that God used Joseph and not one of the other brothers? The sovereignty of God. And any time you try to find a reason outside of God for election and predestination, you're going to be in trouble. Because there is no reason why God should choose anyone that's outside of God's own purpose. That's where we must leave it. Again, we come to Exodus. And we're talking about this revelation of God and His relationship with His people. In Exodus, the redeeming power of God can be seen in the deliverance of Israel from Egyptian bondage, as I just mentioned. You'll see a a phrase that is used, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. God did a work of power in bringing those people out from misery, from bondage, into liberty. The book of Leviticus then emphasizes the holiness of God. That holiness of God is in view as he insists upon the separation and the sanctification of his redeemed people. You study things like the unclean and clean beasts. Things that they were allowed to eat, things that were not allowed to eat. That was laid behind that was holiness. Separation. You think about how the Lord insisted upon cleansing in certain instances after childbirth. In the case of the leper, there was cleansing involved. You'll see those places where a water of separation was employed. It's all to do with the sanctification, the separation of a redeemed people. You come to the book of Numbers, and the book of Numbers describes what the book of Romans calls the goodness and the severity of God. God's severity toward that unbelieving generation which came up from Egypt. It's a remarkable thing that that whole generation that came up out of Egypt died in the wilderness except for a couple of men. I sometimes think about that. There's Joshua and Caleb, those old men, and a bunch of youngsters, virtually youngsters in comparison to them living around them. That was a testimony to unbelief and the consequences of unbelief, the severity upon that unbelieving generation that came up from Egypt. They never entered the promised inheritance. But yet we think not only of the severity of God, but the goodness of God toward their children in providing and protecting and preserving them until the land of Canaan was occupied by Israel. You come to Deuteronomy, and the great feature of that book is the faithfulness of God. Oh, how faithful is God. So faithful to His purpose. Faithful to His promise and faithful to His people. Bringing His redeemed ones to their promised possession. And that's what the Lord will do for you and for me. The hymn writer said, And this shall I find, for such is His mind. He'll not be in glory and leave us behind. He will bring us right through to our promised inheritance, our possession. And those great themes that I just mentioned in the five books can be viewed from both a divine and a human perspective. It's really interesting to do this, to look at things, if you like, from the human side and from the divine side. Think about the human side of things. Genesis shows us ruin through the sin of man. This is what man has done. Humanity has sinned against God. There's ruin as a result. Exodus reveals redemption by blood and power. Leviticus sets forth fellowship through atonement. Numbers illustrates direction or guidance by the will of God. And Deuteronomy shows destination through God's own faithfulness. But on the divine side, as I've just mentioned in Genesis, there's illustrated the divine sovereignty in creation and election. There's in Exodus, divine power in redemption and in emancipation, setting the people free. In Leviticus, there's divine holiness, separation and sanctification, which is of God. In Numbers, you've got divine goodness and divine severity in judging, but at the same time caring for His people. And in Deuteronomy, we see divine faithfulness in discipline and in ultimate Destination. So, it's clear that in these five books, the five parts of the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, there's a lot of purpose, and there's a lot of progress. I don't know that you've ever considered this, but in a sense, the five books of Moses are the Bible in miniature. It's like the Bible in microcosm. Somebody observed that what the four Gospels are to the New Testament, that is Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, so the five books of Moses are to not only the Old Testament, but to the whole Bible. Therefore, an understanding of the Pentateuch is really foundational to your understanding of the message of the whole Bible. And so I hope that as you study the Pentateuch, and I hope that you will read through if you haven't already, that you'll read again Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. There's quite a few chapters there. I think it's over 170, but still. It's really important that you read your Bible. The Bible opens to reading. My pastor used to say say that. The Bible opens to reading. If you don't read your Bible, you'll never get to know it. And so, as you look at the Pentateuch, You find that there's a message there that sets the tone for the rest of the Bible. And I've already mentioned redemption. I don't want to flesh that out today, but I'm sure you can work that out for yourself. That blood atonement is something that finds its way like a scarlet thread all the way through the books of the Old Testament and into the New. Till Christ comes and sheds His blood for His people. There are some general things that I want to mention that are foundational to our study of the Pentateuch. One of the things that I think is really important for us to note always is the unity of the message of Scripture. The Bible is one book. Some of this I've told you before, but it's always good to repeat things, not ad nauseum, But certainly to repeat things is the way that you learn. Here a little, there a little. Line upon line. Precept upon precept. That's how we learn. And the Apostle Peter, you will remember when he wrote to the folks that he wrote to, he made this point. I want you to think about this verse. 2 Peter chapter 1. And verse 12. 2 Peter 1 verse 12. Peter is talking here about things that they were somewhat familiar with already. People could turn around and say, Oh, well, we know all that, Peter. You've told us that before, Peter. We've heard this before. But listen. Peter says, Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 12. Wherefore, I will not be negligent To put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet, or fit, or proper, as long as I'm in this tabernacle, this body, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. So I'm going to keep hammering away at these same nails, Peter said, because that's how truth is imbibed. That's how truth is inculcated in the hearts of people. It's repeated over and over and over and over again. And so I would repeat today what I've said in other messages. Which is that the Bible is one book. Therefore God speaks with one mouth. But that one mouth of God has two lips. And God speaks to us by two lips. One's called the Old Testament, the other's called the New Testament. And they speak together. And the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Always remember that. What we're saying here is that the Bible is one united book, it is one book. And again, that is why I don't like the practice generally of people carrying to church or anywhere else just a New Testament. Now if a New Testament, all you have in your possession that happens to be with you at that particular time, OK. But we're not just New Testament Christians. We're two Testament Christians. The old and the New Testament, one Bible. And one of the most essential and fruitful methods of becoming familiar with your Bible is through the study of its connections and its spiritual developments. When you look at things that are found in type in the Old Testament and then they're fleshed out in the anti-type in the New Testament, what a blessing that is. And there's no study in my estimation that... Brings that out better than typology relating to Christ. When you look at the various types of the Saviour in the Old Testament, and then you see in the light of the New Testament how it all fits. How he fulfills those things. Doesn't it warm your soul? Doesn't it bless your heart? I don't understand ministers who never ever bother with typology. I really don't understand it. Because they're missing out so much. In fact, the scripture that we read in 1 Corinthians 10 actually says those things were written as types, in samples. That's the word. Now, it's vital to appreciate the unity of your Bible. In the Old Testament, and that's where we are at the moment in the Pentateuch, it's very clear that the Old Testament finds its unity in connection with three great offices. And you'll see those offices all the way through the Old Testament. The office of prophet, the office of priest, and the office of king. Look at the various mentions of prophets. Look at the various mentions of priests. and You can't study Exodus and Leviticus without noticing what it says about the priesthood. You can't study the historical books of the Old Testament without thinking about the lives of the kings. And so much is taken up in 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, with the history of men who ruled in Judah and in Israel, culminating in David and in Solomon and so on. Think about the three great offices, prophet, priest and king. The need for a priest can be seen specifically in that period that's covered by the Pentateuch. The need for a priest. The first five books of Moses illustrate this, though it's true that this particular thought is not exclusively associated with those five books, but it is particularly so. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The priesthood is really prominent there. Now, the call for a king is gradually heard. Remember how the people Looked around at the other nations and they thought, well, they've got a king. We don't have a king. We would like to have a king. And the Lord succumbed to their desire. The Lord gave them what they wanted. And we examine the historical books of the Old Testament from the book of Joshua onwards. And we see the history of the kings. Then the importance of the prophet becomes visible. In the prophetical books themselves. You can think of the major prophets. Isaiah. Jeremiah. Ezekiel. You think about the minor prophets. And the message of each of those men. The importance of the office of a spokesman for God. Is visible in the prophetical books. Though of course prophets were mentioned prior to that. Because we think about the prophet Elijah and Elisha and others. But from Genesis to Malachi, that's the Old Testament, the 39 books, there is shown in one way or another the necessity of these three offices in regard to the spiritual need of the people. You come to your New Testament and it becomes evident that our Lord Jesus Christ Himself fulfills these three offices in his person and his work. Now look at the Lord in the four Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You see the Lord in the Gospels, and how does he appear there? He appears in his human life as Jesus. But then you come into the Acts of the Apostles. And though the Lord has gone to heaven, by his Spirit he's still at work, and he is viewed particularly there. In the Acts of the Apostles, in his divine power and authority as Christ, the anointed, the one who has that authority. While in the epistles, he's viewed particularly in connection with his church as Lord. So there you have it. The Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know it's true that he's the Lord Jesus Christ in all three, in the Gospels, in the Acts, and in the Letters. But you think of the Old Testament and Israel of old. They desired these three offices. They desired a prophet. They desired a priest. And they desired a king. And in Jesus Christ our Lord, the answer to that desire is found. Because Jesus is the prophet. Jesus is the priest. Jesus is the Lord, the king. That is why when you study your Old Testament you look at the book of Deuteronomy and see that there is a verse there in chapter 18 that is repeated in the book of Acts chapter 3 where Moses is told I will raise up a prophet like unto thee. Christ would be that prophet. Again we look at the office of Aaron the high priest then you study the book of Hebrews What do you find there? What is predicated of Aaron is seen to be fulfilled in Christ to a greater degree. Then you look at the king. One king in particular, David. Oh, how he speaks of Christ. In fact, there are places in the Old Testament where the word David is used and it's referring to Christ. He is the greater David. He's King David's greater son. Someone said Christ is the prophet to reveal. He's the priest to redeem. And he's the king to rule. He is the prophet to reveal God's truth to us. He's the priest to redeem us to God by his blood. And is the king to rule over and to defend us. There's something else I want to say here. As well as talking about the unity of scripture... There's the progress of doctrine that is found not just in the Pentateuch but throughout the Bible. I need to say something about this. Alongside the wonderful truth of the unity of Scripture there is this complementary truth of the progressive nature of divine revelation. When you think about what was revealed to men at the beginning compared to what was ultimately revealed it is literally the difference between day and night. There was a progressive revelation of truth. And you see that as it develops through the book of Genesis, it begins with that early dawn in Genesis, then you trace through the Bible a gradual development of light and truth that culminates in the bright noonday of Christ's appearing. The Son of Righteousness who rises with healing in His wings. And you can examine the great outstanding truths of the Bible as they're brought before you in the various parts of the Bible. And if you concentrate on Israel, for example, you're naturally going to be concerned with historical truth, the history of the nation. And in looking at the sacrifices and the offerings of the Old Testament, you're going to be concerned with redemptive truth. So you've got historical truth, then you've got redemptive truth, truth that has to do with redemption. And then if you ponder the utterances of the prophets, you're going to obviously be looking at prophetic truth. And let me just say this about the prophets. People often say, well, he's a prophet, meaning he foretells the future, right? He predicts what's going to happen in the future. But actually, if you look at the ministry of the prophets, they were more known as foretellers than as foretellers. In other words, God gave a message to men to preach. He gave a message to Jeremiah and he said, look, I want you to go to the nations and to preach that message. Now, they're going to reject you. Your ministry is going to be largely one of rejection, but I want you to go with that message. He was a foreteller. And that's why you read over and over again, thus and thus saith the Lord of hosts. This is what God says. It's not just... Here's what's going to happen in the future. A lot of people are very interested in what they call prophetic truth. In other words, what's going to happen years from now. But actually the prophets had a ministry that had more to do with the day in which they lived. Now, there was a future element. Of course there was to their ministries. Even in dealing with the subject of Christ coming, there had to be a foretelling There had to be a predictive element. There will be a Christ who will come. There will be a Saviour who will come. Who is Christ the Lord and so on. But the prophets were chiefly forth tellers. Just as preachers today are forth tellers. Now if we examine the lives and conduct of the people and consider various aspects of morality that are ordered by God we're then focused on practical truth. So you read your Bible from all these standpoints. Historical truth in the history. There's redemptive truth. There's prophetical truth. And there's practical truth. Things that will be applicable to your daily life. And in connection with the New Testament study, those various aspects are equally clear. Now before I finish today, I want to just give you a very brief Overview. You know your Bible is made up of 66 separate books, right? But they're really one in all their essential features. Our English word Bible in the the singular actually comes from a Greek word that means the books in the plural. Did you know that? The word Bible itself speaks of that which is plural. The books. And as a complete record of God's divine plan of redemption, the Bible possesses a unity from first to last which expresses the divine purpose. God is at work in the world. God has a great purpose and everything is leading to the fulfillment of that ultimate purpose. So in that sense, all history is redemptive history. Always remember that. All history is redemptive history, including what you read in the first five books of Moses. Now this revelation of God was progressively given along two lines. First of all, there was a revelation of sin. The fact of sin. And the consequences of sin. You go no further than the first three chapters of Genesis. And you have this revelation. How sin came into the world. But then there came the revelation of redemption. The provision of redemption. Its characteristics. And as you look at the doctrine of sin, you'll find that God had already made provision of redemption when sin came into the world. Christ is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Before there was ever sin, there was a Saviour. The key to the unity of the Bible is God's purpose for the redemption of the world. I say then, all history is redemption. The story of its unfolding is in two parts. First, as it was confined to the Jewish nation. And second, as it was revealed to be intended for mankind in general, including the Gentile nations. So now, your Bible consists of two parts. The Old Testament, which records God's preparation both of the Redeemer for the world and the world for the Redeemer. And then the New Testament, with its provision of the Redeemer and His manifestation in the life of the church. With the prospect of His final recognition as the ruler over the world. Now when you take that together, these two parts of the Bible are a complete record of God's method of salvation. In the Old Testament, you will be able to identify two stages. First, the historical introduction of the divine religion into the world, and that's the theme of the Pentateuch. That's what the first five books of Moses are talking about. The introduction of the divine religion into the world. That which forms the books of Moses. And secondly, the historical development of the divine religion in the world. And that's the remaining books of the Old Testament. So you have these two things together. The theme of the Pentateuch, that which forms the books of Moses, the introduction of the divine religion into the world and in the rest of the books of the Old Testament they set forth the Historical development of that divine religion in the world as it goes to work among men. You will know that the Old Testament consists of 39 books, written by at least 30 different authors, covering a very lengthy period of time. The Old Testament is made up of law, history, poetry, philosophy, and prophecy. All these different elements. In your Bible reading, you see the law of God, you see history, various things that happened to various people, poetry, the Psalms to some degree, the Song of Solomon, even Ecclesiastes. You have philosophy, you have prophecy. But the Bible, you should remember, is an Eastern book. And that's why you will come across certain Hebrew idioms that in our society, really don't make any sense. And you should understand that the Bible is set geographically in the East. That will help your understanding of much of what is found within it. And there is, not only in this Eastern book, this flavour of the East, but it's a revelation that is progressively given. Now, in view of this fact, That it comes from the East. It's no great surprise that oftentimes people from the West find it difficult to comprehend. And I know that you're just like me. There are things that you read in your Bible and you think, well, what does that mean? So a better understanding sometimes of Eastern culture and practices could serve to help explain certain incidents and practices spoken of in Scripture. Now, I mentioned one recently. And that is the references to sheep and goats being divided. Now I guarantee you, if I took anyone from our congregation to somewhere in America where there was a flock of sheep and there was a bunch of goats in among the sheep, even though you're from the city and you'd never seen a sheep or a goat hardly in your life, you would be able to tell immediately what was a sheep and what was a goat, right? It's very obvious. But that's not true in the East. That's why when you read in Matthew 25 about the Lord separating people as a shepherd divideth the sheep from the goats. In reading that you might think, well what's what's that all about? A shepherd dividing the sheep from the goats. Why would he do that? It's so obvious. Well, because in the East it's not obvious. If you went with me over to the Middle East today. You went to some of these outlying areas outside the city of Jerusalem. You saw a shepherd and in a bunch of sheep and goats i guarantee you neither you nor i would be able to tell what was a sheep and what was a goat because they look almost exactly the same so when you understand that in the east it's that way that will help to explain that particular reference there are many parts of the old testament that become clearer when eastern law And Eastern life is understood. Things that they did in the East. You think about women carrying water pots. How often do you see that in Allentown? I've never seen that in my life. A woman with a water pot on top of her head. And if it did happen, they'd be calling for the men in white coats to come very quickly and take her away. But if you go to the Middle East, you see that All the time. You would have seen that in Palestine. A lot. So we understand that the Bible is an Eastern book. Now the Jewish division of the Old Testament consists of three parts. Number one, the law, or the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. Now let me just say something here very quickly. Sometimes you'll read in your Bible about the law. And it's not strictly speaking, referring to, say, the Ten Commandments. It's referring to the whole Bible. For instance, in Psalm 119, I'm sure you've read, O how love I thy law, it is my meditation all the day. Do you think he's just talking about the Ten Commandments? Of course not. He's referring to the Bible as a whole. He's referring to the whole of God's Word. So the context will demand what the word law means in a given occasion. There are times when the law does mean The five books of Moses. And when we read of the Lord on the road to Emmaus, that he began at Moses, and later on that same day when he talked to the disciples about the law and the prophets and the Psalms, we know that the law there is referring to the five books of Moses, not just to the Ten Commandments. So the law, or the five books of Moses, forms the Pentateuch. Number two, you have the prophets and they're divided into the former and the latter prophets the former prophets are descriptive they're composed of what we understand as history Joshua Judges 1st and 2nd Samuel 1st and 2nd Kings then you have the latter prophets they consist of those books that we regard as prophecy proper and these are largely predictive you see this in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and in Isaiah as well and the twelve minor prophets and then thirdly you have the writings so you have the law or the the books of Moses you have the prophets and you have the writings and that section includes the remainder of the Old Testament in this precise order the Psalms Job Proverbs Song of Solomon Ruth Lamentations Ecclesiastes Esther Daniel Ezra, Nehemiah and Chronicles and the order of the books in our English Bible is actually based upon the Septuagint a Greek translation of the Old Testament and that translation consists of four main divisions the Mosaic, the Historic the Poetic and the Prophetic Just in closing let me say that the purpose of the Old Testament as a whole in general is to lead us to Christ. And I know I spent some time last year I believe it was in dealing with the preaching of Christ from the Old Testament. And we know that our Lord Jesus Christ himself preached about himself from the Old Testament. Luke chapter 24 makes that clear. Beginning at Moses. And in all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I've often said this, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall, so to speak, or someone eavesdropping on that conversation. What a wonderful thing that would have been. To hear the Lord Jesus picking out of the Pentateuch and other parts of the Old Testament all the things that related to himself. But that's what we're to do by the Spirit. That's what we're to do in our Bible reading. And ask the Lord to help us to do that. Remember what the Lord said in John chapter 5. Verse 39 and verse 46. Search the Scriptures. What's he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament at this time. Search the Scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. We read about Christ in the Old Testament. Then verse 46 For had you believed Moses... And what's he talking about, Moses? He's talking about the first five books of the Bible. He's talking about the Pentateuch. Had you believed Moses, in other words, his writings, you would have believed me. For he wrote of me. He wrote of me. We're going to come back to that when we talk a little bit about the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch. It's good enough... For me, if Jesus said, Moses wrote of him. And Moses did write of him. And in the Old Testament, there are some 300 predictions. While in the New Testament, there are more than 600 quotations from the Old Testament. Think of that. In our Bible reading today, you may have noted that there were several references to the Old Testament. In Romans 15, it says in verse 9, as it is written. Verse 10, and again he saith. Verse 11, and again. And verse 12, and again, Isaiah saith. These are all references from the Old Testament. There are over 600 quotations from the Old Testament in the New Testament. And there's a personal aspect to the purpose of the Old Testament for the reader himself. Remember this, the Old Testament was written for our sakes. It was written for our learning. And it was written for our example. May the Lord help us to study our Bibles with the enablement, with the light of the Holy Spirit and look for our Lord Jesus Christ in the book. I trust that as we go through the five books of Moses that the Lord will instruct us and He will teach us. That we will learn things that we have never learned before. As I must confess I have done even in studying it for myself. May the Lord bless His word to all of our hearts for His own name's sake. Amen.